Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. Welcome. We're very kind of pushed towards the back. I should probably just move this halfway up the aisle. <laughs> It'd probably work out better. Um, but uh, welcome. We are here at the near the end now of our study in the book of Daniel. Uh, we're in Daniel chapter 9 today and eager to get into things. So if you have a Bible with you, open it up to Daniel chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have it up on the screen as well. Uh, sometimes it's just nice to see a Bible in front of you, though, too, as you, as you study. So Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So we get the context for the chapter here in these first opening verses. It's the first year of Darius, and Daniel is studying the Word. He's got his Bible open, he's reading Jeremiah, and he's reminded by the promises of Scripture, the message of the Bible. And if you're not really familiar with the prophets or with the Old Testament, you know, like Ryan was bringing it up here today, right? the, the message of the Old Testament is, is very, very clear, and all of the books just kind of continue to reiterate that very message of Scripture. The Bible begins with the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, really has everything contained in it. But in those first five books of the Bible, right away, the Bible starts out with a message of God, a promise of God to his people. And so Daniel is reading that promise. God promised his people from the very beginning, right? If you know the story of Adam and Eve, and then all the way through to Abraham, to Moses, to all of his... God promises from the very beginning, you are my people, I am your God, and I will save you. I have good for you, I will take care of you, I will provide for you. The imagery that the prophets continually use, like Jeremiah, like the book that Daniel is reading right now, they continually use this image of a marriage, that God married Israel. Right, and Ezekiel gives a really powerful image of this. If you're looking for some side reading, Ezekiel 16 or those types of, this idea of like God picked Israel when nobody wanted her. God picked her and married her and clothed her in beauty, made her beautiful, made her his bride. And that's how the Bible starts, which is this message of God's faithfulness and his promise. I will be your spouse. I will be your husband. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always have good for you. And then the next part of the Bible, out of the Pentateuch, although the story starts in the Pentateuch, you see Israel respond to that promise. And their response is always one of not trusting their husband, not trusting God. God says, I have good for you. I will protect you. I will care for you. I will give you everything that you need. And Israel always says, thanks, but now I'm also going to turn and look somewhere else for more of my life. And so they're always turning to other gods. And that's that history, this continual history. And, and the prophets really call it out. So the prophet Jeremiah calls it out for them. And this is the role of the prophets. The prophets tell Israel, remind Israel of their sin. And so it's reminding Daniel of his sin too, saying, look, your sin it's not just your behavior. Your behavior is part of the problem, but your biggest problem is your adulterous heart. 
They keep using adultery over and over again as the sin of Israel. Israel's fundamental sin is adultery. They keep turning somewhere else. They give their heart to another again and again and again. God promises them, right? I am your God. You are my people. I will love you and care for you. And then Israel gives its heart to other things. If it's money, military power, land, kings, other gods, just continually unfaithful with their heart. So the sin of adultery over and over and over again. So the prophets tell the people how God is going to respond. So all the way through the Old Testament, so it started with that promise. God said, I will be yours. You will be mine. And then you have a history of God's people saying, we don't really want you. And so you just have this tension then of like, well, what is God going to do with these people? What will he do with them? He promised to be faithful to them, but they refuse him. And they'll never be faithful to him, right? It's just like if you knew somebody who is married to someone who is chronically unfaithful, right? you're like, well, what are you going to do at some point? What's going to happen here, right? Who's going to break? And so the prophets, and Jeremiah writes about this. God says, I'm going to break you down, right? I'm going to take you away from the land that I brought you into. I'm going to strip you bare, I'm going to take away everything that I've given you. I'm going to ultimately humiliate you, right, for your sin. I'm going to point it out. I'm going to bring it out for you, what you have done and the horribleness of it. And this judgment is coming. This judgment and exile. I will take you away. Everything good. Because he gave them everything. And everything good that God gave them, they turned into an idol. So he's like, fine. I'm going to take all of those good things away from you. And you will serve another. You will go off into slavery. But I will not forsake you, and I will not leave you. In fact, I will break you so that I can rebuild you. I will uproot you, this is what Jeremiah says, so that I can plant you again. I'm going to break you down, right? I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to crush you under the weight of your own sin so that I can give you a new heart. So that one day you will be faithful to me. You will no longer be an unfaithful bride. One day you will be faithful. And this is the message of the prophets over and over and over again. And, in, and so the, the, they're in exile reading this, hearing this. Israel knows that judgment is coming, which they're now experiencing, but that there's hope that one day, one day the suffering, the exile, the judgment will be over. That one day everything is going to be made new, that one day their hearts are going to be made new, that one day there will be peace, true peace on the day of the Lord. And so the prophets continually remind the people, the day of the Lord is coming. And when the Lord comes, right, and the Lord, meaning this like promised king, this Messiah, when the Lord comes, our hearts will be changed. When the Lord comes, the world will be changed. When the Lord comes, right, the kingdom will be changed. So they're in exile waiting for the day of the Lord to come. That's what Daniel's reading. So we, that's how the narrative starts here in Daniel chapter 9. He is reading the book of Jeremiah, and he is being confronted by that message of God's promise, Israel's sin, and then this hope that one day the Lord will come and everything will be made right again. So what does he do? Verse 3. Then I turned my face 
to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So he goes right into prayer. He hears the message of Scripture. He reads the Bible. He's reading Jeremiah, and it draws him to pray. It brings him to his knees and where he confesses. And notice this, this, this corporate confession. We, we didn't listen. We didn't trust how easy would it have been for Daniel to just blame right, like his parents' generation? I mean, what did Daniel do? Daniel was a child when he was taken away into captivity. He never heard a prophet you know, tell him these things. He's just been reading the Bible, but he takes corporate responsibility for the sins of Israel. We have rebelled. We have not listened. We didn't trust you. Verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Again, this corporate, we have done all these things. The, the curse of the law of Moses, right? The first five books of the Bible, that message, it's happened. Your word is true, Lord. Everything that you said. And to us, just shame, right? He continually says that, right? The only thing that we have is shame for the way that we have behaved. The fact that we have not obeyed you, we have not listened to you, but to you, Right? The way he speaks of God, to you belongs righteousness, mercy, forgiveness. Verse 12. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all, his, all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O oh Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned. 
we have done wickedly. Daniel points out this fact. We have not. You have always been righteous. You have always been good. You have always also been judging us and bringing us to our knees, but we have not taken ownership for our sin. We've never turned back. He wants to give that point, right? Each generation keeps getting an opportunity to turn back to God. And so if you know your Old Testament, that's the story. It's just narrative of God continually being faithful to his people. They grumble and complain. They sin. They turn to other gods. He disciplines them. He shows them love and mercy. And they should turn to him. And they don't. And they never do. They do, but it's always fleeting and momentary and selfish and never genuine. Never with true hearts that have been changed. And he's like, look, we should have been doing this. We should have turned back to you. We should have trusted you. Each generation has this opportunity to do it. And because this is the issue that the prophets have to keep pointing out, that Daniel here in his prayer really exemplifies, but this aspect of each generation, as of today, right, do we take ownership of our responsibility, of our own sin? Because Israel in exile, it is just blaming their parents' generation and their grandparents' generation for their situation. And it's a really easy position to be in where you blame past generations, right? Why is the world so messed up? Why is the country so bad? Why are things going on? And you look back a generation, it's their fault, right? The current generation, right? This isn't even just a religious issue. This could be a social, political thing, right? Never takes ownership of their own responsibilities and things, right? Always blaming the one right before them. I'm in my position because I had a bad father. I'm in my position because I had a bad grandfather. I'm in this position. The church is in this position because of past generations. Right? Daniel won't do that. Right? Daniel in his prayer right, takes ownership of his own sin. Say, we right now are guilty of the exact same sins that Israel has always been guilty of. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's prayer for Jerusalem is amazing. Listen, Lord, incline your ear, open your eyes and see. It's such a prayer that just echoes all of the great prayers of the Old Testament. And it's not based, right, he says, it's not because of our righteousness, not even my righteousness, right, not because of any of these things, but because of God's great mercy. Lord, hear my prayer. Not because I deserve it, right, because clearly Daniel's just gone through how they don't deserve it, 
but because of you, Lord, listen, hear, forgive, pay attention, and act. And all Daniel is doing is asking God to do the very things that God has promised to do. Right? The book of Jeremiah that he's been reading. This was God's intention all along. This is what God promises. I will replant you. I will forgive you. I will not turn away from you. I will hear your cry. Right? If you know Jeremiah 29, like you will cry out to me and I will hear you and I will bring you home. Daniel just read that. And so he prays for it. Lord, hear me. Forgive us. Bring us home. And in so many ways, when you look at Daniel's prayer, it's just a model prayer. It has all of the characteristics of prayer. If you've ever studied prayer at all, if you've been in the church for any kind of length of time, Right, prayer is one of those things that is probably one of the hardest things to really get your head around and even your life habitually built around. I mean, prayer is, it seems like it should come easy, but it doesn't. And the ways in which we pray are very selfishly motivated and at times we go through highs of being very devout in our prayer life. Not, but you look at Daniel's prayer, right, and it is just the model of prayer. It's motivated by God's word, right? Not by his circumstances. It has all of those elements of praise and adoration throughout the entire thing. It is full of confession. He gives thanks. He asks. I mean, it just follows all of those forms that we look for in a prayer. Everything that I want mine to be. And not only that, it's, it, it has this just amazing heart that comes through his prayer, right? Of just... He confesses and he praises and he asks God, but it's also, we know from the past chapters, right, that it's also for him a duty and a discipline, his prayer life. Remember, this is what got him thrown into the lion's den under Darius, is his consistency in his prayer life. This is the prayer that he is praying three times a day. This is that prayer. He's, he prays with a heart that truly loves the Lord and recognizes his sin but he also does it not every once in a while or when he's confronted, but regularly. It's, it's amazing. And what we see in his prayer is this just the prayer that we're all called to pray, a responding to God, prayer as a response to him, an encounter. Prayer is an encounter with a living God, a mystical, prophetic experience. Right? He is encountering the living God as he reads the word and as he prays. He speaks to God as if God is a living, real, listening thing. He's not leaving some kind of cosmic voicemail, but actually speaking to someone who could, in fact, respond. He's asking him to hear. He's asking him to act. And he speaks and he prays as if he has hope for the future as if he believes that something good is coming, that God will actually answer him. And it's in this prayer that he experiences God and Scripture in brand new ways. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me 
in swift flight at the time of the evening, evening sacrifice, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. So Daniel's prayer gets answered. Gabriel shows up to interpret the dream. It'd almost be nice if he didn't, right? It's almost more confusing <laughs> when he actually gives the interpretation of the dream. But you have, because you had Daniel's prayer, and it was so great. And he gives this prayer to the Lord, and because Daniel is greatly loved, Gabriel comes and he gives him good news, right? Yes, the Lord has heard your prayer. Yes, it's all going to end. The day is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Yes. And he, he switches from years to weeks. And he's like, oh, seven weeks. Oh, I can do that. All right. So this is coming soon. But then it's not just that. He gives this kind of 77. If you start adding up all the weeks, you're like, wait, what's going on here? And it's really a challenge to Daniel's perspective of time. And this is kind of what the Hebrews do with these numbers and the 77s and all those types of things where he's saying, yes, Daniel, it's all going to end. But not exactly how you think. It's like when Jesus gets asked, how many times are you, am I supposed to forgive? It's the 70 times seven. It's the same kind of thing God is doing to Daniel here. Yes, this is all going to end. But not when you think. Anointed one will come, yep. This king will come, but that won't be the end of it either. After the king comes, the king will also go away and you will go through pain and suffering again and there will be desolations and then everything will be made, back, will be made right again. Daniel's prayers have been heard. God will be faithful to his promise and that's the good news in it, right? It gives hope to Daniel in the midst of his exile to the midst of all of us, right? God will be faithful. A king is coming, a kingdom, a people, a city. But it's not going to come quickly and it's not going to come easily. And it won't come in the way that Israel or Daniel would expect it to come, right? And if you know the history of the New Testament and Christ the king, he comes. But it doesn't look like what Daniel or anyone was expecting. This king comes as a baby, as a child, doesn't raise an army, but instead gathers disciples, dies on a cross like a common criminal, doesn't claim a throne, 
and then leaves. <laughs> say, whoa, what's going on here? But that's what God is challenging his people to rethink, right? What does it really mean to live in this kingdom and this king who is coming? And the message is very, very straightforward and clear. It's the message of the whole book of Daniel. God is in control. Suffering and trial, the pain, the consequences of our sin, we will feel them and we will go through them. This world is a broken and fallen place and we will suffer and there will be darkness. Right? And many of you have experienced that. I mean, we know this. We are not to expect life to be easy, life to be, go well for us. We should expect exile and pain and hardship. But it will end. It will not always be that way, that everything will be made right. And now a lot of time could be spent on the vision itself, right, which you could do. And we've looked at a few visions now already of the angel Gabriel and the son of man and the beasts and the horn and the ram. And the, we could spend a lot of time on that visions, but the point of chapter 9 is not to get caught up in trying to overly interpret the vision, right, like who is the desolator when is this going to happen? What does the seven weeks mean? That's not really the point. I think what the point of chapter 9 really is, is it's the whole scene that we see, right? The scene of Daniel praying and waiting and hoping for the day of the Lord. Because this is the point of the writings. This section of the Bible where Daniel is, is called the writings. It's wisdom literature. The intention of this whole section of the Bible is to give Israel instruction for how to wait for the coming king. Right, this is Proverbs, this is Job. This is this picture of like, how do I actually, in fact, wait? The book of Psalms, how do you pray while we wait for the Lord? And so Daniel's picture that he gives us is a picture of being confronted by Scripture and by his context and his prayer. Because right, we've been looking at Daniel as a model for us, right, of how to live in a culture that's not our own. How do I faithfully live in a culture that is so alien to me, and in fact seems to be working contrary to the things that my king and my kingdom work for. Right? We've seen that throughout the whole book. How do I live a life in exile as I wait for the coming day? George preached on Revelation, the day is coming, the king is coming. How do I actually live? What is it that strengthened Daniel so much to be able to stand up to the kings while also lovingly serve them? Well, we see it here, his prayer life was a huge component to this. And when you look at how he prays, it is powerful, it is prophetic, it's experiential, it's biblical. And Daniel's prayers even get answered, right? Angels show up for Daniel to give him interpretations and to answer his prayers. I mean, this is, this is the prayer life I wish I had, right? I mean, this is the prayer life we all want to pray the way that Daniel prayed, regular, disciplined, but with passion and with a heart and with God intervening and sending angels. <laughs> I mean, that would be, this would be, yeah, this would be amazing. But when I look at my own life and I look at my prayer life, right, I mean, we got to take an honest look at this, right? As Christians, we are called to pray. Well, what is it that brings me to my knees to pray? Like, when do you pray? What causes you to pray? What causes me to pray? Usually, right, if I'm honest with myself, when I pray, I'm usually feeling pain or fear 
or I feel a need, right? Like I just have to pray. Like I'm, at, I'm at a, my wit's end. I'm at the end of everything, right? I need, I don't know what else to do, so I pray. Sometimes, rarely though, I pray in celebration, right? When something really great happens, do I pray? That's not as often, right? For me, most of the time, I pray when I feel overwhelmed. That's usually what causes me to pray. Usually being overwhelmed by blessing doesn't make me pray. The opposite. I pray sometimes just out of a feeling of duty, right? Because I feel like I need to or I should, right? I have a title of pastor or elder. Oh boy, if I'm not praying, well, I should pray. So I'll make sure that I pray or it becomes a work, right? It becomes something scheduled. I set aside time in my day to pray and I make lists and I write down the list and I pray through my list and then I pat myself on the back for praying through my list and getting through it all. I would love to pray more, right? But I don't. Maybe that's you, right? You, you have a desire to pray, and you wish that your life was marked by prayer, consistent prayer, right? And all of us, if you grew up Christian, you probably know those old people, right, who are the prayer warriors of the, you know, it's like, oh, I wish I could pray like them, right? The, the people people go to to ask for prayer because they know they're going to pray for them, and they know they're going to pray consistently for them. I've always looked up to those people, right, and wanted to be them. I want to pray consistently. I want to pray all the time. I want to be known for praying. I have the desire to be that, but I don't do it. I'm not that person. I would love to pray like Daniel, but I ultimately don't. So we have to ask ourselves the question of why, right? What prevents us from this? What prevents Israel from praying like Daniel? Because <laughs> this is not a, it's a model prayer, absolutely, but it is not the prayer that all of Israel is praying. <laughs> this will not be their prayer. This is the prayer that they should be praying, but it's not the prayer that they pray, and nor is it the prayer that I should pray, even though I know it is the one that I should be. And I think the biggest reasons, right, is, well, one reason I don't pray consistently enough or in this way, right, is that it, would, it actually takes discipline. And we are a very weak, undisciplined people. If you think back to, like, the book of Hebrews, when George went through the book of Hebrews, I mean, that's a... If you weren't here for that, you should listen to that series. That's so necessary for the church to discipline themselves. It's very easy to get lazy and complacent, especially in exile, and become a native. Right? I need discipline in my life. Paul speaks of this regularly, of training his body, of sacrificing, and of the discipline necessary of being faithful to Christ in the midst of exile, in the midst of a world that's not mine. I've, I need discipline. Right? It's hard enough for me just to exercise regularly. I, prayer is of far more importance. Right? How disciplined am I? But I think the big, bigger issue than just the fact that it's hard and it takes discipline is that ultimately I don't think I need to pray. I think that's what prevents most of us from praying more or praying like Daniel or what prevented Israel from praying regularly, consistently. I don't really think it's necessary, right? We look at prayer 
as something optional, as something good. Like, it would be good for me to pray more. It would be good for me to pray like Daniel. My life would be good. Things may go better for me. (laughs) I may grow, but I don't need it. I don't have to do it. God is still faithful whether or not I pray. He will still answer what I need. He will still give me what I need even if I don't ask. His word is still true whether or not I pray through it. I think what, it would, what would it take, right? What would it take for us to be more consistent in prayer, to be more prophetic in prayer, to be more powerful in prayer? We would actually have to be convinced of its necessity, of its power, that it was in fact something that gave life, that it was something in fact that I need, not just something that would be good for me. And for many of us, we know how powerful prayer is, which is why we start to feel all kinds of guilt and shame when sermons like this come around. So I'm sorry if you're feeling that weight of guilt and shame for not praying enough because we know how powerful prayer is, right? Many of you have experienced it at the lowest part of your life or at various points in your life. You know the power of it because prayer gives us several things, right? The first thing prayer gives us is it gives us perspective, powerful perspective. When I pray, my perspective changes, It reorientates everything around me. It changes my view towards God and away from myself. Oh, wow, talk about something necessary, right? If I'm just focused on me and my life and my circumstances, life does not go well. In prayer, it changes my focus towards God. I'm automatically drawn to giving him thanks, to being filled with awe and praise. That's necessary, that new perspective, The second thing prayer gives, right, it gives strength. You know this. If you've ever prayed or prayed regularly, prayer gives strength. It does. There is something incredibly mystical and powerful in prayer. This spiritual union with God, right, the spirit is real. The fact that I can unite, I'm united with him and can speak, right, it's participating in him and experiencing that love growing in that, getting more of Jesus into me. I mean, like, it's powerful. Prayer is an incredibly powerful thing. It gives actual, tangible, real strength, which you've experienced if you've prayed regularly before. If you've asked him to meet you and to give you strength, he does, and you get strength. This third thing that I think prayer really gives is this spiritual reality, right? It gives us a presence of God, my heart begins to sense him and to feel him and to see him in my life, right? Prayer prevents us from that spiritual dryness of where we feel like God is so distant from us and can't be seen anymore. In prayer, we begin to sense him and see him and experience him all around us. It gives an honesty, right? Prayer is ultimately a very honest experience, right? It's very difficult to lie and pray. It's very difficult to live in hypocrisy and just being false with God when you are in prayer. It's easy to do that in community with others, to be false and to not be true or genuine. But in prayer, I can't do it for very long, right, and not be honest, right? It just doesn't work. 
And that honesty, that self-knowledge is so necessary. It creates trust, right? It really, it requires it on one end to go into prayer. I actually have to trust God. And then it creates restful, confident trust within me for God. And then it helps me to surrender, right? It creates and requires a surrender of my whole life to God. I mean, these, the benefits of prayer are very palpable and real. And we know these things and we experience them. But then we have a hard time committing our lives to prayer or being more faithful in prayer. And the good news for us, right, if you've been feeling some weight (laughs) and some guilt for not praying like Daniel does, the good news is that we are not called to pray like Daniel. (laughs) We are, but we can't. The great news of Daniel's prayer is that Christ prays like Daniel on our behalf. Right? Because Daniel's prayer is not the only prayer in Scripture. Right? Daniel's prayer ultimately points us to Jesus and to his prayers. Because think about this. I mean, Daniel's prayer is powerful. Jesus prays just like Daniel. Right? When you look at Jesus' prayers, they are like Daniel's, but even better. He is more dedicated than Daniel. Jesus stays up all night praying sweating blood. He's so committed to praying. He, there's no wavering with him. He fulfills this picture far greater than I ever could, right? I mean, I can commit myself to pray like Daniel, but I'm not going to keep it up, right? I mean, you know this. I know this. Jesus does, though. He, his whole life is a life of prophetic, dedicated prayer. His every breath is a prayer to God, I mean, the way in which he prays and lives is exactly this, but so much better. He prays the way that we were meant to. He even taught us how to pray, right? He teaches us, and this is how you should pray. He, he prays on our behalf. He prays for us on the cross as he's dying, right? He prays for the people who are killing him and for us who will believe in him, right? Like, he doesn't just pray He prays on our behalf for us and shows us how to pray. And then he gives us the ability to pray, right? That aspect of being able to pray in the name of Jesus, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Like, why do we always, why is that a traditional thing in Christianity, right? So you always end it in Jesus' name, right? In the name of Jesus, amen, right? This gives us access, This is because of his death, because of Jesus praying on our behalf, because of his death and his resurrection. I now pray through Jesus. I now have access. Think about Daniel and the access he had to kings, the boldness he had to speak to Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, right? He was very bold with the kings. Through Christ, we have access to the Father in that same way, even better, right? Because this access that we have, right, and it has a very kingly aspect to it, this idea of having access, praying in the name of, right, is really the question of like, who can go before the king without fear of death? Well, I can. I can pray because of Christ. I have access. Tim Keller gives this great little picture of like, who could get away, right, with waking a king in the middle of the night to ask for water? right? Daniel couldn't. Only a child could get away with that. 
Only a loved child of the king could wake up the king in the middle of the night. That's us. Because of Christ praying on our behalf and his death and his resurrection, I now have access to the Father. I get to pray with boldness and confidence to the king. and has nothing to do with me. And ultimately, right, how do I know that my prayers will be answered? How do I know that I have access? Right, how do I know that I can pray and that God hears my prayers? How do I know that prayer is going to work in my life? How do I know that God hears me? Because Jesus' prayers went unanswered. I was brought into the family. Right? You were brought into the family of God because Christ was cut out of the family. Christ prayed on the cross, right? And it was unheard. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His prayer went unanswered. The one person who has ever lived whose prayers should have been answered went unanswered, was abandoned and rejected so that my prayers would never be unanswered, so that I would never be abandoned and rejected, so I would always have access to the king, that I would always be part of the family of God. The love and mercy of God, the cost of my salvation, right? The reality that I have in Christ melts my heart and draws me to pray. Because it's one thing just to become more routine and disciplined in our prayer life, and that is good. But without a heart for prayer, it's never going to have the same effect. Every time a Christian remembers who they are in Christ, this great word of salvation comes flooding home. Right? And we find ourselves over and over and over again being able to pray. So I ask us, right, you know, to really take a look at yourself, to look inward. You know, in, in many ways, where have you given up on prayer? What is prayer for you? Maybe it's become overly religious. Maybe it's just a duty and a habit and a routine. And you pray. You pray every day. But there isn't a heart for prayer. It isn't prophetic. It isn't mystical. You don't experience God in it. It's a checklist that you do and you finish. For others of us, prayer is the most ridiculous sounding thing, right? If you don't really believe in God, <laughs> say, well, prayer is just self-medicating weirdness. Of course, I'm not going to try that. Where are you when it comes to prayer? What truth have you forgotten? What truth do you need to be confronted with? Where do you need Christ to empower you and to empower, empower your prayers? And I would encourage you to just take some small steps. Like we do need to develop habits. We do need discipline. That is clear. We need to be disciplined. If we're going to make it through this exile, right? if we're going to make it waiting for the apocalypse to come, if I want to be found faithful and I want to be faithful, if I want to be this faithful, rebellious Christian in this world that knows when to speak the truth and when to submit, I'm going to need help. I'm going to need God. I need to pray. And to do that, I'm going to need to develop habits of prayer. So I encourage you to develop these habits, habits where you will be daily confronted with the gospel. Not just daily habits of praying, 
but daily habits where you will be confronted with who you are in Christ, which will melt your heart, which develops that habit of seeing yourself properly, which develops that habit of of prayer. And I would also advise you to be like Daniel in many ways here. Pray through Scripture. Don't let circumstances drive you to prayer, but let the Word of God drive you to prayer. Pray through the Bible. Pray through the Word. The book of Psalms, that's its intention. Pray through the Psalms. Pray through books. Pray through Ephesians, Colossians. Pray through the Gospels. Wherever you're in, whatever study you're doing, pray. Add prayer into that. And aim for your heart not for a change of your circumstances in your prayer life. Daniel doesn't ask for his circumstances to change. He asks for the restoration of all things, but Daniel also knows he's never going to see it. He's praying for things that he will never experience himself. Daniel's going to spend his entire life in exile. He'll never go home, but he daily prays for the restoration of Jerusalem, something that he will never see. That's powerful prayer. That's praying on a cosmic level. That's praying for God's purposes. That's praying for what God has promised. It's not praying selfishly. Aim for that. Pray for what God is doing on a broad level. Pray for the church. Pray for the word of God to go forth with power. Pray for God to recreate all things, for there to be justice for there to be peace, for there to be love and truth and honesty. Pray for these things. And you find more and more that your heart becomes more in alignment with God's will and with these things and less and less selfish and and immediate about your own life. But overall, we just really need to start praying. (laughs) We got to pray more. We have to pray more diligently and we have to do so in light of Christ though. Not just prayer without Jesus. It's got to be Jesus and prayer together. Otherwise, this will just become another act, another duty, something else just to feel more and more guilty about for not doing. We've got to be confronted with Christ and the cost of our salvation and the access that we have in prayer, which will melt our heart and help us to truly pray genuinely. Let me pray for us now, though, as we finish. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good. To you belongs all righteousness and glory. Lord, to you belong mercy and forgiveness. You are such a patient God. A God who is just overflowing with love and steadfast faithfulness. You have been exceedingly faithful to your people and to us. Lord, you have called us into your family You have given us your word. You have spoken to us through the prophets and through uh, your scripture. And Lord, we have rebelled against you. We have not turned to you. We have taken the free gift of salvation that you offer us and we trample it. And we instead choose to be our own king, to trust in ourselves to seek after money and success, affirmation, power, comfort, 
Lord, we seek so many other things before we think to seek you. And Lord, we thank you that you have not turned away from us in our sin, but that you have put an end to our sin, that you sent your son to die in our place so that we are pure and spotless in your eyes. Lord, we confess to you that we are very selfish and our prayer life is not as disciplined as it should be or as genuine as it should be. Lord, we just ask that you continue to melt our hearts through the power of your gospel. Lord, continue to confront us with who we are. Lord, continue to show us our sin, to humble us. Lord, continue to draw us to you. Lord, we consider it joy, the pain and the suffering of this life, because we know that our hope is in you and not in this life. Lord, we are eager for the day when you come back and make all things right. Lord, we ask that you look upon us and look upon this world, that you hear us, that you forgive, and that you act. Lord, continue the work that you have started in us and in us as a church, in the city, in this world. Lord, strengthen us. In your name we pray. Amen.